to the Public Safety Innovators Podcast. Connecting you with experts and trendsetters who are leading innovation in law enforcement, private security, and personal protection. And now, your host, Adam Wills. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 8 of the Public Safety Innovators Podcast. I have a very special episode for you today. In fact, this is going to be episode 1 of 2 with my conversation with Adam Kinnikin. Now you probably know Adam Kinnikin as the host of the Tactical Breakdown Podcast, or you may recognize him as being the host and mind behind the first annual International Law Enforcement Training Summit, or ILET Summit. That premiered this year in July for the first time, where Adam, along with 45 other world-leading experts, brought free online training to law enforcement agencies around the globe. So we're going to talk about the ILET Summit a bit in this episode and how Adam came up with that idea, what it took to accomplish that, and what his plans are for the future of the ILET Summit. We're going to talk about a lot of things in the next two episodes. We're even going to talk about what it's like for Adam to live in a remote area of Canada. And so lots in store. I hope you stick around for both episodes. Episode two will air next week on the show. Uh, So come back for that. And without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into this episode of the Public Safety Innovators podcast with Adam Kinnikin. Adam Kinnikin, how's it going, man? Brother, what's happening? Thanks for having me, man. This is uh, this is gonna be fun. Well, who's having who? I don't really know. I mean, we, this is kind of a a unique situation here, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, these are these are always fun podcasts where we get to kind of share a conversation with two different audiences. I mean, essentially, it's the same audience, and hopefully, we'll be able to get some of your listeners over to our podcast and, and our listeners will jump over and check out your podcast, uh, which is, which is relatively new, right? Like how many, how many episodes are you in? Seven episodes. So this will be episode eight. I love it. I love it. The more podcasts in this space, the better, the more training information that gets out, the better, right? I mean, that's, that's the core concept of everything that we do over here. And it's just, let's get as much information out there as possible. So uh, I'm really happy that I could jump on and uh, do your podcast with you, man. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, likewise. I mean, I thought it was a great idea. We were talking uh, uh, online and we were like, hey, I should have you on the podcast. And you're like, well, I should have you on my podcast. <laughs> and then we're like, well, wait a second. We're probably going to talk about the same stuff. Why should we do that twice? Let's just let's just record this once and we'll share it with both audiences. And I sure hope that I can get some uh, listeners over to our show. I'm, I'm happy to send some your way, but admittedly, uh, uh, you've got a much bigger audience than I do. I kind of feel like I'm in the room with a, a legend here in, in the law enforcement podcasting world. So a little bit out of my depth. <laughs> yeah, there's there's six of us in the room. It's not the it's not the largest uh, niche <laughs> market uh, is the law enforcement podcast, but it, it is. It's a really fun space to be in. And obviously, everybody that listens to these podcasts, whether it's listening here on my podcast or on yours, you know, they're here to 
get information, right? And a lot of the time, I know yeah. for, for my audience, they're here because they want to learn something that maybe they didn't know before or hear something in a different way. And for me, I mean, that's one of the biggest things we talk about in training is getting outside your bubble and getting information and getting resources from people that maybe you haven't heard from before. And hopefully that'll allow you to innovate your your thinking and innovate your training. So maybe generating maybe- ideas. Yeah, man. It's all it's all about new ideas. Yeah. I think what you and some of the others are doing in, in this podcast space is is phenomenal. And I sure didn't didn't want to compete with what you were doing. I've listened to your podcast for, for some time and like I'm not looking to start a podcast doing the same thing. I wanted to do something different. And that was why I decided to call it public safety innovators and and try to really just bring people on the show to talk about unorthodox, out of the box ideas related to law enforcement and private security to just be just be different think think outside the box let's not do things the way we've always done them let's look for new ways to do things and to do them better not just for the sake of doing things in a different way but to do them better yeah absolutely the beautiful thing about this industry and when i say industry i'm i'm actually going to bring in everything that you just mentioned we're going to talk about law enforcement we're talking about emergency response professionals. So it doesn't matter if you're fire, if you're EMS, if you're in emergency management, if you're a SAR tech, right? There's, if you're in security, if you're in corrections, I mean, in the criminal justice field, there's so many parts to, to this industry as a whole. And there's so many things that are applicable that you may not even understand that there's something that maybe fire does that police could use, but they just haven't been exposed to that training or that knowledge yet. Yeah. So Excellent point. We love we love rolling that stuff in to to everything that we do. For example, we're going to be running the ILFE conference later this year in December, and one of the speakers on that summit is Dr. Charles Samuels, who's actually uh, out of Calgary, Alberta. Here, and he's a medical doctor. He doesn't, you know, he's not a law enforcement professional, but he wrote and teaches fatigue management, and actually wrote the program for the RCMP up here in Canada. So he's going to be presenting this fatigue management to all of the firearms instructors that are involved with ILFE. And if you don't know anything about ILFE, it's the International Association of Law Enforcement Firearms Instructors. And so they have instructors from all around the world that teach law enforcement all around the world. And we're bringing in a concept that isn't usually taught at a firearms training event, but it's relevant. I mean, yeah. You go onto the range, there's a reason why when you go onto the range, we should be doing some type of dynamic drills, not just standing at a bench and firing your 50, 100 rounds and then going home. So absolutely, it was really interesting. Actually, I just read an article today and I feel like I'm just promoting the shit out of Calgary, but um, <laughs> another, one, of, one of the instructors that I'm really close with, Mr. Brian Willis. He has a, a blog that he he writes all the time, and it's so high level, but he, he just put a blog out today. It was very, very short, maybe like three paragraphs, but he was talking about why aren't we teaching our officers to drop their coffee? And it was I was like, what is this about? And so I click no, into it. No, that's an excellent point. Yeah, absolutely. And, and he was talking about if you're at the range, how many instructors would have all of the everybody line up on the line, hold a cup of coffee in their hand and then have that exposure pop up and then just watch and see what your officers do. 
because the the vast majority will actually bend over, put the cup on the ground, get back up, draw, acquire, and fire. But the reaction that we want is the snap second that that pops up and there's the threat. We want them to drop their coffee and draw and acquire the target and, and put rounds down range. So it's, are we building these types of training into what we're doing? So I just, I love stuff like that. I love the the psychological play on on everything that we do. I love building in physical training to everything that we do. And it's just an example of what we were talking about at the beginning of this, which is how do we bring in other kinds of information into our training? Yeah. And that's a really excellent point you make about the cup of coffee. We actually trained on that um, when I was still with the Weld County Sheriff's Office. We, not with a cup of coffee, but with a clipboard, because how many times the concept is still the same of officers walking up, you know, writing a ticket for a traffic citation and you, you end up in a lethal force situation and how many of them are worried about losing that ticket, right? Cause we've been, we've been taught <laughs> that we don't lose that ticket, that ticket, you know, it's tracked and we have to, we have to file an addendum if we lose it and, you know, or even if we have to avoid it. And so like this ticket and this ticket book becomes this kind of sacred thing and we clutch onto it right in this situation and in the the idea is the same like let's use that clipboard instead you know throw it at the the subject or just pitch it on the ground right but uh certainly no need to tie up a hand and and protect that yeah and you can you can even track that over to you you know you're you're less lethal right what if yeah. you're in the middle of an encounter sure. and you have baton you have oc you have a cew whatever it is your officers trained to as soon as that lethal threat comes out, it's kind of counterintuitive for them to drop that taser, right? Especially if it's in your dominant hand. Like that's not something that we're used to doing where the threat presents itself. I'm going to generally use whatever I have available to me in my hand. But what the reaction that we really want is for them to discard what's not going to be useful in the situation and acquire what is useful. And so, I mean, there's a, just in this short little conversation alone, we could probably talk through 500 different scenarios that would all be very, very different, but focus on the same concept. There's so many really neat things that we do in training that hopefully, I mean, that's that's the whole purpose of what we're doing here, right? Is is trying to expand people's minds. If you're an instructor, it's, hey, just, just realize there's there's people doing things out here that you may have never seen before, and you should maybe just give it a try or, or take a look at it, read the documentation on it, um, read the research and find out why instructors are teaching certain things that it's really innovating the type of training that we're doing. Yeah, I'm scrolling through my uh, LinkedIn feed right now because I this reminded me of an article that Scott Savage from Savage Training Group shared the other day. And I was trying to find it here and I just found it. And it was actually a post from Tony Blauer with Blauer Tactical Systems and was talking about how we practice to miss. When we do our training, when we do our defensive tactics training, we will practice to miss, right? We throw these punches with the intention of not hurting the partner that we're training with. But what Tony Blauer is saying is that, well, you're, you're training your people to miss and not make contact when that situation actually becomes real. And same concept. And I just think it's it's awesome that we are looking at what we're currently doing in the training space and saying, okay, what about that is good? What about it is bad? What can we make better? Right. And I think that's how we constantly, we improve as a profession 
is by looking at things and making them better. That's that whole innovative mindset. You know, we, we actually had an episode, I had Scott Savage on my show here recently, I think two episodes ago now for, yeah, it would have been episode six. And we talked specifically about what we called the cancer uh, to law enforcement, which is the, that's the way we've always done it attitude. And Scott and I, when we first connected with each other, we kind of became kindred spirits because we're both very much against that mentality. I've always looked at the, that's the way we've always done it is, is almost a challenge to, to say, okay, well, if that's the way we've always done it, is it really the, is it really the best way? And maybe if it is, then great. But I just love that journey of evaluating that and determining, is this the best way or is there a better way of doing it? You know, it's funny. I mean, obviously anybody who, who listens to, to my show, they know, I know, you know, Scott and Tony, I'm, I'm very close with, and, and we talk all the time. They're all, we're always sharing stuff, but it's, it's interesting when we talk about levels of training and types of training, when we talk about practicing and, and uh, training people to miss. And if you were to, if you were to sit and, and I'm sure if we had Tony on here talking with us, he'd say the same thing. I mean, that obviously goes back to, to the traditional martial arts type of training that we grew up on, right? Which mm-hmm. is a lot of it was built off of things like point sparring and training. So obviously I can't punch somebody that there's a reason why BJJ is so popular and it's because I can train at almost a hundred percent up into a certain point. You can't train at a hundred percent doing Muay Thai. You can't train at a hundred percent doing traditional boxing because you're going to knock somebody out. You're going to cause serious, serious damage to that person that you're training. Or you're going to hurt yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Or or hurt yourself. And, (laughs) you know, so there is a time and a place for those repetitions. There is a time and a place to have somebody throw full power punches at a pad that is maybe off target to the actual point of contact that you would want to hit in a real life scenario. But, there is a difference between that and then building in dynamic and high fidelity training. And, and that's really the, the core concept. And I by no means am an expert in this. I, I obviously rely on guys like Tony, like Scott, guys like Chris Butler. Yeah, likewise. And I reach out to them. And, and when we talk high fidelity training, there's a reason why things like high gear exist, right? Which gets you closer to real but still not there but it allows you to throw a stronger strike at a direct target right it allows feedback for the wearer of that equipment whether you're playing the bad guy or you're playing the officer you get that instant feedback like man i just got hit i have to figure this out there's a reason why we use things like shock knives and uh utm marking simunitions yeah exactly yeah and so There's a reason why we use those, but again, it comes down to how do you build out your training? There's no benefit in taking an agency that has two days worth of training, like use of force training throughout the whole year and all they get is two days and throwing them into a completely dynamic scenario with marking cartridges and and all this stuff. Like there's, there's really no benefit there because you've missed all the steps along the way, right? Just like there's no benefit in taking them in there and just walking through the academics of use of force and not having them do any hands-on skills. There's going to be a happy medium in everything that we do, and it falls on that individual instructor 
or group of instructors to figure out what is going to work best within their agency, within their policies, procedures, and within the confines of their budget and the time allotment that they have. And, you know, it's, it really comes down to, and I, I hate to say this, but it's really the reality when we talk about instructors, not only just in North America, but around the world, the vast majority of instructors pay out of pocket for a lot of their training. And it's because they're, they're in that consistent state of wanting to learn. They want to improve. They want to create a better product for the officers and students that they're training. That's why these things like podcasts are so fantastic. That's why we started doing all of these summits and events that we're running because we want people to have access to that. And it shouldn't cost you an arm and a leg if you have to pay out a park it because your agency just lost all of its funding because of all the shit that's happening right now or whatever. Yeah, isn't that the it stupidest is. thing ever? You know, so we only have a few minutes here on the podcast to talk about it. Uh, in reality, we could have this conversation for for weeks on end. And yeah, no I doubt. mean, I think everybody listening to this knows that. But it, it's interesting to be able to bring it up again and just kind of stress the point that it really falls on that individual instructor to create that training environment for their officers. And there isn't going to be a one size fits all option. You're not going to be able to buy a system and get training on a system as an instructor or as an instructor trainer and take that and roll it out to your agency. And that will solve all your problems. Unfortunately, right. that just doesn't exist. You have to work within the confines of what you have available to you. And um, sometimes that can be very, very, very difficult. Well, especially when you consider, and I don't know what the statistics are in, in Canada there, Adam, but in the U.S., and I, I, I'm not quoting statistics here either. This is a generalization from my recollection, but it's something like 60 to 70% of the law enforcement agencies in the United States have 20 or less sworn officers. And so when you consider that, I mean, that's a lot of small budgets, right? I mean, it's, it's hard to obtain those same level of resources that larger agencies can get their hands on, not, not only for training, but obviously money and, and just the access to new ideas. And uh, that's why I think these sort of platforms like you've put together and, and we're doing right now with the podcast are just paramount. They're huge. And it's, it's a huge benefit to everyone from administrators, leaders, all the way down to line staff and, and brand new people that are coming into the profession which God bless them right now, man. I, I don't even know. I can't even fathom what it would be like coming into law enforcement profession right now in 2020. I don't know if I would do it. <laughs> you know, I started in law enforcement 15 years. Actually, it's been more than that now. Seven, almost 17 years ago is when I started. And it was different. It was a lot different, man. Yeah. I mean, and a quick point of fact to to your listeners I mean, my background is not in law enforcement. I've I've never been a sworn law enforcement officer. My background was with the Canadian Forces. Uh, I was an infantry officer with them, and I conducted training for our regiment. And I transitioned into the civilian side of things, where I did do a lot of use of force, defensive tactics training, a lot of stuff on the legal side with private security, and really was always integrated within the training space when it came to law enforcement. I mean, I've been an ILETA member since, I think, 2011 now. And it's it's always interesting to me to see how there's the difference between large and small agency training. You know, for example, let me I'm going to throw some numbers out that I don't know if a lot of people realize. Everybody draws comparisons between Canada and the U.S. Obviously, we are larger by landmass than the United States is, right? But 
I'm gonna I'm gonna throw some numbers at you that I think you'll find. Some cool. of those are pretty uninhabitable areas. <laughs> well, I must say so myself. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was um, obviously, as you know, I mean, I speak with people all around uh, the world, but all around the U.S. very, very regularly. And a lot of them, I mean, a lot of my training partners, a lot of the companies that we collaborate with are in either in Arizona or in uh, Nevada or in Texas. And so it was funny because we've been this week, we've been in the the low 20s pretty much all week. And we're in October. What is middle of October? It's, as it's too early for that, man. And so it's funny. But and I'm talking to some places where they're in the, the high 90s or sometimes in the hundreds. And for our Canadian listeners, we're talking about zero and then around, you know, uh, 30 degrees, 35 degrees uh, Celsius. So it's interesting because. For us, I mean, up here in Canada, it's obviously a lot different than it is in the U.S. But when we talk about agencies, you br- you brought up small agencies, right? Agencies under 20, 25 officers. So in the United States, and I don't have d- exact numbers in front of me, so so don't quote me. But I think I think the U.S. is just shy of about 18,000 law enforcement agencies. So and that includes right. everything from, you know, sheriff's offices, state police, highway patrol, uh, federal law enforcement, all those types of groups, right? Close to 18,000. I know for a fact, because I, I work with them in Ohio, for example, there's over 700 or around 700 agencies that have 25 officers or less, right? In Ohio. In Canada, by contrast, in the entire country, we have 147 agencies. Wow. A lot more... Uh regional law enforcement agencies there, right? Cover larger areas? Yes and no. I mean, the two most common would be the RCMP, which would be an equivalent to like the FBI, essentially, in the United States. And then we have, obviously, like provincial law enforcement, but which is really only utilized in Ontario, for the most part, with the Ontario Provincial Police, that kind of handle more of the smaller municipalities where the larger centers will have their own uh, municipal police forces. And then the RCMP are scattered around the country working out of, of their individual detachments. And they'll, they're will they brought in by the, the municipality. And so they'll bring the RCMP and pay all of the, the costs associated with that. And then they have policing in their area. But usually they yeah. do. You know, large, so there's some similarities there. Larger areas. Yeah. Again, you're talking 127 or so agencies total across the country in Canada. And in Ohio alone, you have five times the amount with agencies less than 25 officers. So the pure numbers, especially in the United States, show that the vast majority of agencies are those smaller agencies. Not Not every agency has the budget or the resources of the NYPD, of the LAPD, right, of Memphis, of Austin, whatever it is. They don't have those budgets. A lot of times, especially when we talk tack teams, right? Those are sometimes it's state level teams. Sometimes it's guys that are doing it part time on call. And I mean, that's the way we work up here for a lot of it. We don't have a lot of dedicated teams outside of our major centers. So when we talk about training, there's a massive difference in what you can do from a training perspective. If you have a dedicated group of instructors for, say, a, a massive department, right? Like one of these major centers where you have thousands and thousands of officers versus an agency where you have 20 officers and your instructor also has 17 different hats. And now you have to coordinate training time 
with overtime and making sure that all the shifts are covered and all of these different things, it, it becomes very, very, very difficult. And I know I'm preaching to the choir and I know everybody listening to this is like, yeah, we know, we know, but yeah. it provides important context when we talk about one of those agencies, <laughs> <laughs> it provides important context when we're talking about how we develop training, because again, one size doesn't fit all. I know you've had the chance to to speak with and train with some guys that are very, very high level. Obviously, I've had the opportunity to to work with our Canadian forces and and I've had a chance to speak with a lot of guys from the United States that have uh, admittedly a lot more combat experience than even our Canadian forces, especially when we talk about like DevGru and and some of the soft teams. But we found it was interesting because I spoke with one of them about when they went down and they got asked to come in and, and do some training with a SWAT, a local SWAT team. They went in and um, they wanted them to like, show us all the high speed stuff that you guys do. And he's like, it's, I could, but there's no benefit to you because right. the stuff that we do, like you have to understand that even talking about the way you port your weapon, right? There's a reason why you see, operators carry their weapon in a certain fashion, depending on what they're doing versus the way we train law enforcement officers to carry their weapon. And the difference is, is time and training and those reps, those guys get tens of thousands of reps. They train day in and day out when they're not deployed, they're training, right? They're training, mm -hmm. they're training nine months to 12 months for a six month deployment versus in law enforcement, where we get, 16 hours of training for a full year's worth of deployment. It's, it's yeah. not even, you're not even talking the same sport. You're talking apples and windows. Like it's not even, it's not even the same thing. So why are we trying to take all of this high speed training that we watch all of these very, very skilled and proficient operators do, and then trying to apply that to a local police officer? It doesn't make sense. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, it's really not applicable too. I mean, it has its purposes in certain situations, but you're also talking about combat tactics versus law enforcement tactics. And and don't get me wrong. I mean, some of the areas in our country right now, and, and I'm sure the same goes for you guys. Some of them seem like combat zones and there's certainly a higher level of awareness and preparation that needs to occur. But we don't have a combat purpose in law enforcement, right? That's not our, our first function. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not the guy that's going to sit here and say that uh, cops shouldn't have up armored vehicles and, and things of that nature like some do. Um, I, I am all for that and the use of excess military property to achieve that. But, you know, we, we, can't, we can't allow ourselves either. When we look at there's this growing chasm between what the community thinks we should be doing and what we think we should do, be doing. And I don't know that either side is right or wrong. The, the truth always lies somewhere in the middle, right? But there's at least this growing chasm of understanding of each other. And we can't allow ourselves to progress down a path where uh, we as law enforcement are training for combat all the time. We have to have a lot more tools in our tool belt than, than a typical soldier might have to have. 1000%. I mean, there's no, there's no question. Taking the current political climate and setting it aside, which I know is difficult right now, especially in the US. Oh, it's everywhere and I'm sick of it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't talk politics on my show very often, if at all. 
the reason being is because there's really no benefit to it. There's no benefit to, if you're listening to this right now, there's no benefit to hear my opinion, especially if you're an American and you, you I'm a Canadian, you don't give, nobody cares what my opinion is on what's happening yeah. <laughs> and, and vice versa. I mean, I probably know a handful of Americans that even know our prime minister's name. So <laughs> we, I won't even, and I won't, I, put, I, I wouldn't be counted in that handful. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> well, I wasn't going to put you on the spot, but. <laughs> Hey everybody, just me popping in here for a quick break. I want to thank you, first of all, for listening to the show. It's because of faithful listeners like you that we have now far exceeded over 4,000 downloads of the show and that we're able to bring in really awesome guests on the show. So I'd like to ask you to please share this show with your friends and most importantly, please go and leave a review wherever it is that you listen to the Public Safety Innovators podcast. Those reviews help all of those different podcast directories, algorithms to display this show to other people like you that may be interested in listening to it. So please go ahead and head over to psi.chat forward slash review. And I've made it super easy there for you to leave a review on iTunes, Podchaser, and Stitcher. So please head over to psi.chat forward slash review, and then let's go ahead and dive back into the show. The interesting thing is, is that do I personally think that there is a lot of things that we can be taking off of the individual officer's plate by expanding what we're currently doing as far as as operational groups go within a law enforcement department, right? We have these response teams that have been built out in some agencies around the country in the US and in Canada, where you have a patrol officer who's teamed up with a counselor or a counselor and maybe a, a paramedic. And they respond to those certain types of calls that are applicable. And they find amazing success in those when they when they roll those out. And the reason being is because you're exactly right. You're expecting an officer to go in and act as a counselor. It goes back to this training conversation, right? Somebody asked me like, hey, Adam, would you can you teach a, a first aid course? Technically, yes, I have a instructor certification in first aid from Red Cross. Right. So can I teach a first aid course? Yeah, of course I can. But wouldn't it make more sense to have you trained by somebody who is an active paramedic who's been doing the job for the last 25 years? Because they know the ins and outs. They are able to answer all of those questions for you because it's their area of expertise. Right. Even though I'm capable of doing it, why would I do it? It doesn't make sense. Let's translate that now into an officer's role. Why are you having officers that maybe, you know, we do have officers uh, and you know, and I'm sure you know them that are amazing mediators that are amazing at de-escalating situations and they have the gift of gab and they could talk somebody mm -hmm. that, you know, they could sell sandwich Arab or whatever you want to, whatever <laughs> um, <laughs> horrible uh, parallel you could draw there. Uh, we usually say uh -huh. go to an Eskimo up here in Canada. <laughs> I was trying to make yeah. it applicable. So there are those people, but the vast majority just, they don't have that. So why wouldn't we take an expert like a counselor 
and put pair them up with an officer and have them deal with the majority of those calls. I think that's a fantastic idea. It, yeah. In fact, I've, I've known some folks that are uh, the complete opposite of what you just described. You can throw them into the calmest situation and they'll amp it up. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah no. And, and that's just it, right? I mean, there's there's people that are predetermined to be put into certain roles, right? You know, we see that with certain guys that do tactical operations. We see that with investigators. We see that with people that are experts at dealing with sex crimes, right? I mean, you want to talk about a certain role that's probably one of the most difficult, those people that deal with sex crimes, that has to be one of the hardest jobs in the world, right? Yeah. Um, on one of our, our uh, the last summit that we ran, the ILET summit, I had an expert on, Dr. Patrick Tidmarsh from Australia, and he specializes in dealing with child abusers, right? So sexual deviants, people that abuse and target children, he goes in and he sits in the penitentiary with them and moderates roundtables where he sits and listens to them discuss their preferences, how they target children, all of these things. But he does it in a calm, cool manner to get the information so that they can then take that and use it to catch more bad guys. Like that's that guy's got to have so much vicarious trauma. I, I can't even imagine. Oh, but that's the thing. There's certain people that are meant for those types of roles, just like there's certain people that are meant to respond to somebody who is in some type of mental crisis, just like we have people that are there to respond to situations that require a more tactical operational use. There's there's so many different caveats to the job of policing. It's probably, in my opinion, it has to be one of the most diverse and dynamic jobs in the world. I can't really think yeah. of another job that demands more of an individual than policing, right? Yeah, So I would agree. Why are we still in this, having this discussion with the way we run our agencies, right? I mean, I understand that there's the old guard and the new guard and everything that has to do with politics. If you're left wing, right wing, whatever it is, if we want to start talking about changing the way we do policing, let's start with addressing what are some changes that we can make that actually just start making sense, right? Use what you have available to you within your own community, this whole defund the police thing, obviously, I know your opinion on it, and I know everybody who's listening to this opinion on it. <laughs> the, the other side that I really like people to try to think about is think about the other side of the argument, right? Think about all of those people that are disenfranchised, all of those people that have had horrible experiences, maybe because they were in the middle of a mental crisis and an officer was sent to them that day and that officer just got off a call where they were in a fight and... Now they're all jazzed up and ramped up and they still have adrenaline pumping because they weren't debriefed properly from the, the last call and they roll right into the next call and everything goes bad. That happens. That's fairly common. So it's not the officer's fault, but at the same time, it's not the, the citizen's fault either. So you have to look at it from the citizen's perspective and saying, well, I had a horrible experience and this is what happened. And do you think they go and be like, oh, he probably was having a bad day, so I'm going to let it go. No, of course not. Just like we don't let it go when a suspect does something stupid and we have to deal with them, right? It goes both ways. The The problem is, is that people get so stuck on saying this is our side, right? We're behind the blue line. This is our group. You're either with us, you're against us, whatever it is. Cool. I get that. I'm there, man. I'm I'm right there with you. But the other side, they're allowed that same freedom to have those same opinions and thoughts that you do. 
It's your job to understand that. It's your job to understand that they have different thoughts and feelings than you do because of their experiences. And that's really what I think we have to start focusing on in that community policing aspect is having those open discussions. It's like when I get in a fight with my wife, right? We start off, we're super heated. And then I'm like, screw it. I'm just leaving. And I walk away and I don't talk to her for a while. And then she's pissed at me. And then she ignores me for a while. And then eventually we get to a point where we're like, why are you even mad? Like, why are you even mad at me? Well, I don't know. Cause you were mad at me. And I'm like, I was, I thought you were mad at me. Like, and it's like, Oh, okay. So we're both good. And then you work your way back to what actually started the fight, whether it was like dishes or something stupid. Like I forgot to take out the garbage or whatever it was. Those things, we have to start having those same conversations in a policing context when it comes to dealing with the community. And I just don't know if we're there yet. I don't know what that step is to get to that point because right now it's so polarized that it's it's kind of a fruitless endeavor to even try to have those conversations when everyone's so at odds with each other right now. Yeah. I think it really all boils down to, I mean, all those ideas you presented, they're, they're great. I, I love them. And I, I wish we could apply that sort of innovative thinking across the board. But I think it all comes down to a resource issue, all, all, all of it, whether it's the, the concept of taking a counselor uh, with you to go to mental health related calls or being able to, to hot wash after a call that's amped up, right? So that you can move past that, calm down, get ready for the next call with a clear head. Th- that all comes down to a resource issue, right? Because in order to do both of those things, you need more cops and you need more funding for more training. <laughs> That's why it just seems so silly to me that we're even talking right now. Uh, and it seems people think it's really a legitimate conversation line to have about defunding police. It's it, That creates the opposite effect at which they claim they want to have. Yeah, I mean, it's the the whole defund the police thing. I, you know, I, I, I usually don't talk. It's there's really no benefit into to just giving more air or life to to that conversation. Yeah, we all we all understand what's going to happen if certain groups, certain states, certain cities decide to do that. We're seeing it right now. We're seeing what's happening up here in Canada. We're lucky we don't have as much of a harsh reaction. Obviously, we still have the same types of uh, requests, the same protests, not to the same degree. We're not at the the riot stage, but it's it's because you guys have poutine. Like, how can you get angry when you've got poutine? Yeah, I guess I. You know, it's funny. (laughs) Um, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. Maybe maybe it's just knowing the amount of calories that's going into my body at once. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we can't be friends I'm anymore. Weeks worth, I'm getting <laughs> weeks worth of meals in the next 15 minutes. That's fantastic. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's it's interesting. It, it is very interesting the way everything's shaping with this. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go back to what I mentioned before, which is innovating training, right? If if you're proactive, you're listening to this and you're an instructor or you have any influence on training within your agencies, guess what? It's going to be time to innovate. It's going to be time to to change the way we do things because oh, yeah. now may, more than ever, you may not have the opportunity. Budgets for training have always sucked. Let's be honest. Unless you're on a specialty yeah. team, budgets for training sucks. So 
it's instead of having the same old, oh God, why don't we have the budget again? Oh, we can't do that because we don't have the budget. We don't have the time. Well, if you're an instructor or you're in any way associated with training, guess what? It's time to find a solution. There's no more luxury there. There's no more sit and wait for something to happen. It's time to get out there and actually start making some proactive changes. And what's the way to do that? I'm not going to say that I have the answers because I don't. But one of the things that we're actively trying to do is facilitate ways for officers and agencies to get training where it's not going to cost them an arm and a leg. They don't have to have officers sit at a desk when they should be out on patrol. You know, that's why we rolled out the ILET Summit, the International Law Enforcement Training Summit that we ran in July. We put together over 70 hours of training content from, I think it was like 48 of the top instructors in the world, right? Guys, so a lot of them we've mentioned here already today, right? So Tony Blauer, Scott Savage. We had a lot of the guys from Force Science Institute. We had uh, Bill Lewinsky even jumped on. Dave Grossman, Tim Kennedy. You know, the list goes on and on and on of some of the top instructors in the world and what they do. And we did that for free. All of these instructors donated their time and we put all of this content out there for officers around the world to attend for free. And why did we do that? Did we do it to piss off the establishment of law enforcement training in, in the country? I mean, it, it did it accomplish that, whether that was my intention or not. Did you really? Oh, you, you you got some you got some hate mail about that, huh? Yeah. Well, you have to remember when when people have been charging for something for a very long time, and then somebody comes out and gives everybody the same shit for free. People kind of get hot and bothered, which I understand. I mean, the the difference being is that it's it's a different context, right? We were not offering certification courses for training. I wasn't going to mm-hmm. give somebody a post accredited cert on their use of force training that they could take and use for their in service. That's not what we were doing. It was more of educational, right? So it was just like this. You and I having a conversation, sharing information, and it was the, it was the attendees job to take from it what they could. So we didn't offer certifications. Now we, if you actually go to it, uh, you can get a certificate of attendance saying that you actually attended the event itself, but there's not an individual module that you get a certification or accreditation for. And, but what we did was we took all this training from around the world and we gave it to these officers for free. And again, going back to the very first thing we said, which was getting outside your bubble, like we had instructors from Australia, from Canada, from the UK, uh, from the US, right? People that are expats from other countries, whether it be Israel or Italy or wherever they were from, teaching and training and sharing their knowledge on their subject matter. And the reason being is because maybe there was something there that was useful. Let me let me give an example. So going back to Scott, because I, I love promoting Scott and, and the Savage Training Group. Oh, never Scott's awesome. So his team at Savage Training Group did a session on interview and interrogation. And so it was like a three-hour discussion, a training session, and they they introduced a few new ideas or reworked ideas onto how to have these discussions, certain things that you should be looking for during your conversation, ways to to get the information you need to from the suspect or from the witness. And it was interesting because the vast majority of feedback on it was, that was amazing. I'm going to take that and implement that like tomorrow. Like that was great. And then we had some people that were like, I've been an investigator for 30 years and uh, this was just a waste of my time. 
And I, I was, I was laughing because I, I emailed the, the gentleman back and I said, listen, man, if you've been an investigator for 30 years, this session wasn't for you. <laughs> like it was for the 98% of officers. I don't know if I agree with that, but go ahead, finish your thought you know, like, and then I'll, and then I'll object. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like it was for the 98% that have never had investigative training before. Right. For the officer that gets thrown into an investigative position without any official training or actual training. And they're just asked to go and conduct interviews. It's to give them a little an extra tool in their toolbox to be able to use. So they're not just shooting in the dark. Right. I'll let you uh, counter. (laughs) I'll rebut that sort of. So I, I agree with you. I think that is the ideal student for their interview and interrogation course. I've, I've read through the, the material that they have for that course and hands down. The ideal student is that line level, entry level officer who's not a detective, who doesn't have years of experience as a professional interviewer interrogator, right? Because there's a blank slate there. That blank slate, they're, they're a lot more able to accept new concepts, new ideas. But that in and of itself is also the reason why I would object and say that guy that was in that room probably in a lot of ways needed that training more than anybody else. Because one of the things I love about Scott's interview and interrogation course is that he rebuts a lot of the things that have been taught traditionally in interview and interrogation that don't work, that actually create false confessions and cause lost cases. And I'm not naming any names about who's been training on that for years and years and years and years. But it's become very ingrained into the law enforcement community that there are these these certain skills, these certain things that you do in order to elicit a confession, and that we can somehow in the interview room be a human lie detector, and we can tell, oh, the person he's looking up and to the left, or he just scratched his nose, and I saw them do that the last time I asked him a question, right? So I mean, just these these foolish things that really don't work that actually get us in more trouble. And I think because of that, that guy who had 30 years of experience as an investigator, interrogator, probably needed that course more than anybody else in that room. Yes, I agree with you on that point. I definitely do. And like you said, there there are so many things that are ingrained, especially if you've been doing something for a long time, that it's it's going to be super difficult in the time frame allotted to change that person's mind. And and. I guess that, Absolutely. that's kind of the yeah. point I was making was if this he guy probably won't change his mind, even with that, more time. You know, exactly. <laughs> like, the guy's been doing it for 30 years. Do you really think that listening to a three hour session on interview and interrogation is going to change the way he does business? I would wager probably not. Right. Right. Um, and that's kind of what I meant. You know, it's interesting, but we, we talk about those types of skills, right? Again, it goes back to general knowledge. We can use the example of, of interviews for a second because we just touched on it. But, you, you know, you talked about things like facial expressions, right? Body posture, all these different things that traditionally we would tell people like, you know, if they look up and to the left, it means this. And if they look up and to the right, it means this. that's all been fairly well debunked in actual academia and, and through. But people still use it. Well, they do. Right. I mean, I have I'm looking at my bookshelf right now and I have books. I don't know if anybody here is familiar with Paul Ekman, um, but yes, yes. So I have I have all of his books. I've actually gone through 
the Ekman group and actually conducted all their training. My major in university was psychology. So I was super interested in, in all those types of things. But like Paul Ekman, right? Um, books like, uh, let's see what I got here. Reading People with uh, Dr. Ellen Joe Demetrius. So like all of these different books that are basically saying, here's how to tell if somebody's lying to you. Or some people rely on that gut instinct. Oh, I think he's lying. Well, how about we start relying on some facts? Because, because that's what's going to make or break your case is either you have evidence or you don't, right? It's not going to be, well, your honor, I feel very strongly that he was lying. Well, can you prove it? Well, no. Okay. Well, I think we, yeah. we know what's going to happen there. So it's, it's teaching people a different way of having these discussions and preparing themselves prior to having discussions, whether it's with a witness or with a suspect and teaching them very, very simple, basic skills like questioning. You'd be surprised. I'm still surprised with people that don't realize when they're asking a leading question. Yeah, that's that that's got to be the most baffling thing to me. Yeah. And as far as far as those tools go, like you, you mentioned, Paul Ekman and his training. I don't think there's anything wrong with the fact necessarily that those sort of things are being used. I think the issue lies in an over-reliance upon it. And I think that's what, you know, Scott is trying to meet out in his training is that there's, uh, it has been largely debunked and we can't have an over-reliance on those, those things. So like Paul Ekman, I think he's got a course on micro expressions or something like that, or, or micro I don't remember what he calls it. I think it's micro expressions. Yeah. But really it's just the concept of understanding how people display emotion on their face, right? Which is just a human thing, right? We have to understand that it gives us context of what we're seeing and what we're getting out of the subject when we're doing an interview. But in and of itself, that alone cannot be used to say this person is, in, in my opinion, but I've taken that micro expression course that Paul Ekman puts on. It's a great course. It's phenomenal. And I think he has an, an online version of it, in fact. But, uh, but yeah, that's my opinion. I think it's just an over-reliance on those things. I didn't mean to indicate that I think it's completely, it should just be thrown out the window and not used. It's just, we can't over-rely on it. Exactly. And it goes back to the whole conversation of uh, adding all these different tools to your toolbox, thinking outside the box, right? getting different pieces of information. No one's saying that you should take a course and wholeheartedly adapt a whole new way of doing things because you've taken a new course. The idea right. is, is to take what's relevant to you and it may only be one thing. Take that one little golden nugget and then apply it in context to what you're doing. And that's the beauty of, of what we're doing, right? That's the beauty of this. That's the beauty of somebody listening to this. There's somebody that's listening to this right now that's like, these two guys are just full of it. They have no idea what they're talking about, but <laughs> he did say that one thing and that's actually a good point. And that's usually, if you think about human communication, that's usually the way it works, right? You'll watch something, you'll watch people discuss, you'll watch, hopefully, I don't know if maybe somebody here was actually able to sit through the entire presidential debate that you guys just had. I actually sat through and watched the entire thing. I probably finished half a bottle uh, to be able to do it. <laughs> but there's so much back and forth and, and so much things. But every once in a while, there was a little piece in there that you were like, oh, that's actually a really good point. That is what happens with us in communication in general, right? You and I will have this conversation and we've been talking now for almost an hour. We're going to have this conversation. And when we're done, 
20 minutes from now, we're probably not going to remember 98% of the words that we just said, but there's going to be one thing that you're like, oh yeah, I remember, I, I remember that Adam said this, right? And that's the one thing that I'm going to take away from this conversation. And you'll, the same thing will happen with you. It's just the way our brains absorb information. But that goes into learning how how do we learn, right? If you're an instructor and you haven't taken any training on actual learning methodology, that's the first thing that you should be doing. You need to start learning how people learn and how to actually conduct training before worrying about the skills that you're actually trying to impart onto somebody else. Because if you you could be the best person in the world and know the most about that specific topic, but if you do not know how to convey that correctly to an individual student, you might as well just be Joe Blow off the street because it doesn't matter because they're not going to retain it. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I cannot agree more about that. Hey, everybody. Thanks for checking out this episode of Public Safety Innovators Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please head over to my website at publicsafetyinnovatorspodcast.com or simply psi.chat where you can check out episode notes and other episodes from the show. While you're there, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or really anywhere else that you prefer to listen to podcasts. I would greatly appreciate if you could help other people find the show by leaving a review wherever it is that you prefer to listen to the show. I'd love to hear from you if you have feedback about the show, a suggestion on a guest, or maybe you're a public safety innovator yourself and would like to be a guest on the show. Please head over to my contact page on the website and you can submit that information there or just email me at adam at psi.chat. All right, I'll catch you on the next episode.